0: Colossians 2 is where we turn again this morning, the last sermon, hopefully from this wonderful passage, uh, verses 8 through 15, speaking about our sure salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no question about the completeness of it, the exhaustion of it, not that it's exhausting, but that it's exhaustive, and it. there's nothing that somehow is outside of God's procurement. He has accomplished salvation for us. There's nothing we need to add to it. There's nothing, no one else that we need to look to to say, maybe, well, I need a bonus. I need an add-on to this uh, salvation package that God provides to us. I need something else, some auxiliary uh, accessories or something just to make sure that, that things are going to work out as I expect. No, there's nothing, nothing needed in that. And that was a problem in that ancient city of Colossae, in that they thought that they needed to add to Christ certain mystical teachings, certain worship of angels and even demons, uh, certain uh, works of righteousness, what they thought, in terms of keeping kosher you know, food laws and making sure they honored the Sabbath day and various festivals and new moons, and that they had very restrictive things in terms of what they could do, could do what they could not do. We'll see that the... The end of this chapter when he says you you pay attention to these decrees do not handle do not taste do not touch that has nothing to do with your advancement and righteousness look to christ and that's what paul has been doing in this wonderful passage as he did back in chapter one glorifying the lord jesus christ well perhaps for the last time in our in our sunday morning times i'll read this passage beginning at verse 8 colossians 2 and verse 8 through verse 15 paul says see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority, in whom also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's also taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. This verse fifteen is where we'll be looking this morning. Backing up though into verse fourteen, the reason that verse fifteen can happen is because of what God has accomplished in verse fourteen, and that is canceling, wiping out the certificate of debt, or which is to say, our fine, our penalty, the condemnation that was ours in in God's righteous judgment because of our sinfulness, because of our wickedness, our rebellion against God. He canceled that out. It was all it was hostile to us. It was condemning us. Because without, uh, or anyone who transgresses or violates even one commandment of God's holy law is is guilty of everything. I mean, one mark against you is is you're done. You're dead. And the wages of sin is death. And yet the gift of God is uh, righteousness is that gift which he provides to those who put faith in him. Notice it says that 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 canceled uh debt or that cancelled decree against us wasn't just set aside, it was taken right out of the way, and it was nailed to the cross. It was Christ himself who became sin for us so that we don't have to bear God's judgment. Those who were in Christ don't have to punish be punished for their sin. Christ himself suffered in our place, and we can have forgiveness. Well, in in the course of doing that, Christ accomplished salvation for us he accomplished a victory for himself which also benefits us as well verse 15 a corresponding reality of that having canceled out the certificate of debt is also this having disarmed the rulers and authorities you think whoa having disarmed the rulers and authorities he is the one christ is the one who has accomplished this now there is some people take this in various ways who is the subject of this verse which is to say who is the one who's acting who is the the uh, the uh, well, the actor behind all these is these these actions is it god the father is god the father the one who disarmed the rulers and authorities god if i just take out the pronouns god made a public display of them those rulers and authorities having triumphed over them in him maybe some of your translations say in it and we'll talk about that in a moment. But who, who is the one who's acting and who is him? Who is this one who's doing it? I think it's God the Father. If we backed up into uh, verse, uh, well, this verse would be a good example. Verse 13 says, He, God the Father, I believe, made you alive together with Christ. God the Father never died. Christ, God the Son, died for us on that cross. God the Father made us alive together with Christ. I think God the Father is the one who's acting in these things. God the Father canceled out that certificate of debt. You know, it's interesting how our guilt, our our uh, reception of wrath from God is is typically, I think there's maybe one, one place where it says differently, but whenever we have this wrath of God, or who's angry about our sin? It's typically God the Father. I think God the Father canceled out the certificate of debt. He put the wrath, his wrath, on Christ. Isaiah 53 teaches us that. He became sin. He bore our chastisement. the the uh, Our transgressions were laid upon him, and by his wounds or by his stripes we are healed. It's Christ who accomplish salvation so that God the Father's wrath can be abated. Now, there's some overlap in that because judgment, all judgment, Jesus says, has been given over to him and so he also is is the one who judges and yet there's that relation to um, to God the Father but one example of of the wrath of the lamb is in revelation uh, 6 is it i think it's revelation 6 where it talks about uh the people would would crawl into these mountains and these caves and say deliver us from the wrath of God and of the lamb so the lamb is Christ so there's that wrath of the lamb that's mentioned there. But typically it is God the Father that is is active in these things. And here in verse 15, I believe it's God the Father who disarmed the rulers and the authorities. It's through Christ he accomplished these things. You can't really draw a, a distinction between them in, in this regard. They're both active through this, but it's God the Father in his uh, sovereignty, in his authority as the Father and the Son who accomplishes it for us. But notice it says, he disarmed them, or maybe your translation has something different. The idea is that, just as we saw in verse 11, uh, a different, uh, this is a a verb form or action form where a noun was appeared in verse 11, same idea, same root idea, that is the removal of the body of the flesh, back in verse 11. Here it's the disarming, or the removal of what? Not the removal of the rulers and authorities, as if they're not active anymore in our lives, no, Uh, Peter even in the 60s AD, was writing that beware, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So it's not like these rulers and authorities are out of the picture, like our canceled debt, right? Taken out of the way. No, but he has disarmed them. He has removed their, in a a very literal sense, their clothing, their honor. And you think, what what is that even talking about? Do do demons, these kind of things, wear uh, clothing? Well, this idea of stripping or you might call it humiliation or gloating over the victory that, that was accomplished. It's a, a, not just a biblical idea. It's an ancient idea. And maybe even we see it sometimes in, in warfare where the victors strip off the garments of the ones who have been vanquished and just celebrate over their graves, you know, dance on their graves kind of thing. There's an evidence of it back in Genesis chapter 37 when the brothers of Joseph saw him coming, and of course he had that nice coat, multicolored robe. And it says in, in the 30, Genesis thirty-seven twenty-three, verse twenty-three, it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic. Now that was a shameful thing; it's embarrassing. That was his gift from his father, and so forth. That very colored tunic that was on him, and they put him, took it, took him, and threw him into the pit. And it goes on and talks about the other shameful things that they did to him, even selling him into slavery. They hated him. They despised Joseph. They just wanted nothing to do with him. Now, thankfully, God worked it out for good. The other big example of this, in terms of the ignominy and the shameful treatment of the victors against the the uh, the conquered, is in First Samuel chapter thirty-one, when King Saul died there on Mount Gilboa with his sons there afterward after them, and it says, uh, verse eight. This is First Samuel. 31 verse 8, it came out on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain. Now, that was to shame them, but also to say, hey, what you ha- What do you have in your pockets? And what kind of gold are you wearing? And I said, you have a nice sword. I think that's mine now. You're not going to use it anymore. They came to strip the slain. They found Saul and his three sons, on Mount Geboah. They cut off his head, stripped, him off, stripped off his weapons, and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines. Why'd they do that? Sending the head, sending the weapons of Saul, to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. Yay! We had conquered. We conquered over the Israelites, and they they were vanquished before us. It says it in verse ten, they put his weapons in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. That's disgusting, and yet that's a, a proof of their victory. They are shaming the God of Israel, or is it the King of Israel, and the God thereby, because when you conquer a people, you're obviously conquering your God is, is stronger than their God, kind of thing. It's a very shameful way that they did it, and yet that's what this idea is: having disarmed, having disrobed, or stripped the rulers and authorities. It says, now goes on and talks about that, that thankfully the men of Jabesh Gilead came and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons and they burned them and buried them and so forth. There's that uh, kindness that they showed to them. The various prophets talk about this idea of stripping uh, or disarming here and it's in a negative sense. It's a very condemning sense. It's a a humiliating uh, kind of a situation. Hosea uh, comments on that he says I will strip uh, Israel or Judah naked and expose her as on the day when she was born I'll make her wilderness make her like desert land and slay her with thirst it's condemnation this this embarrassing situation Ezekiel a couple of different occasions he talks about Jerusalem I will give Jerusalem into the hands of your lovers they will tear down your shrines demolish your high places strip you of your clothing take away your jewels and will leave you naked and bare and then again he says I will also strip or they are they will also strip you Israel of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewels. It's a shameful treatment. It is an embarrassing, humiliating action and yet God is the one who has done it against the rulers and authorities. He is the one who has accomplished this wonderful action. It is in connection with this this idea we'll see in a moment. He made a public display of them. It's a it's a uh you could call it concurrent, it happened at the same time, or you could say he disarmed them and then he put them on display. He said, look, look at these people now. Look at these rulers and authorities, all these powers that they had. It's nothing. My son, Christ, has accomplished salvation. He has accomplished victory for these bunch of sinners. We'll see this word again used in Colossians 3 and verse 9, really the only two places it's used in the New Testament, this disarmed or or stripped Here in this verse and then in Colossians 3 and verse 9, that we ought to put off, or we did put off the old man with its evil practices. We have stripped that. Why should we go back to our old man, put those back, put those evil deeds back on our bodies, which is to say in our, in our lives, and continue in sin? Why should we go back to those evil practices from which we have been delivered? Well, we shouldn't, obviously. He says here that God is the one who disarmed or stripped the rulers and authorities. We saw this phrase used back in verse 10. Uh, there it was all rule and authority. It was a singular idea emphasizing each individual one. Here as a class, he just says every every rule, every, all, uh, all the rulers and authorities have been stripped or disarmed. Now the question is, is he talking about like Herod uh, Agrippa or is he talking about uh, Pontius Pilate? or maybe those Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, and so forth, a lot of times we see rulers and authorities in relation to human rule and authority. I think here, though, because of the context of the issue that was facing in the Colossian church because they were worshiping angels, worshiping demons, worshiping these spiritual beings that they thought they had to. Because you can get to God, the Father, the the chief one, but you have to go through these these uh, series of emanations, these series of of successive deities that would that would allow us human people, these mortal people, to approach the God. And they said, well, we need to worship these different angels, some of these lower angels, and the next higher angels, and the ones over that, and and finally we can get to God. He says, forget about those. They are vanquished, the good ones and the bad ones. Now, why would you worship angels? Uh, We'll see that they do. End of chapter 2, they said, don't worship angels. Get Get after worshiping Christ, glory in him. God is the one who has accomplished this disarming or stripping of these rulers and authorities, whether they're human, whether they're spiritual. He is, verse 10 says, Christ is the head over all rule and authority, and he has disarmed them. We'll see it at the end of, of Colossians 2. Let no one keep defrauding of your prize by delighting in the worship of angels. Don't do that. Christ is the one. Worship him. Focus on him. These people take their stand on visions he's seen, but he's inflated in his mind. He has just thinks too much of himself. Uh, he is, uh, he's not holding fast to the head. The head is Christ. Worship him. We can also see this, this combination of rulers and authorities and the uh, corresponding passage. Remember when Paul wrote to the Colossian church, he also wrote to the Ephesian church or the church in Ephesus. He also wrote to Philemon. Those three letters, I think, are happening at the same time. I think Paul sent them by the hand of the same messenger uh, through these different cities. Now, Ephesus was about a 100 miles or so from Colossae. Philemon was a resident of Colossae. And so, hey, I'm going to write these three letters, and off they go. Anyway, he wrote Ephesians chapter 1, and he says... God brought about in Christ when He raised from the dead and seated Him. This is Ephesians one twenty. Seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There's no reason for us to say, "Well, I think that I should worship some angels. I think I should worship worship some demons. Maybe even." humanly speaking worship some saints you know saint this and saint that and we have days for different saints and and honor them and 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 make sure you know please pray for me and help me and intercede for me no go to Christ that's that's where you need to go look to Christ find your satisfaction in him find your assurance that you are accepted not in saint so and so not in angel that and the, that and this you are accepted in the beloved you're accepted in Christ Look to Christ, what he has accomplished for us. This reality of rulers and authorities, whether they're good angels or bad angels, it doesn't matter. He has he's, he's victor over all these things. All angels, all demons serve and worship Christ. Do you know, though, Satan is alive and well? That's the title of a book, Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth. That book was written back in the 70s. And yet he is is from the beginning the deceiver. He is the murderer. Jesus said he's the your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning, and you want to kill me too. Well, he is the accuser of the brethren. He is the one who holds sinners captive. We saw that earlier. Don't let anyone take you captive through elementary things and and philosophy and all this stuff. Uh, But Satan wants to take believers captive through deception and falsehood, and he is the one who accuses us. Uh, We see that in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, that he is the accuser of the brethren. Uh, I think it was Peter who mentions that as well, Uh, and and Revelation 12 talks about the accusations that Satan levels against Christians even. The, The difficulty with that reality is that his accusations typically are true, that we don't deserve life, we don't deserve forgiveness. When he accuses us of things, it's, it's probably true. It's probably, yeah, that's, yeah, guilty. In which case, this thing back that we saw in verse 14, God canceled out the certificate of debt which against us. Yeah, Satan can accuse us of all these things, but that debt has been canceled. Christ paid for it. Don't be led, led away from the sufficiency, the completeness that we have in Christ. Don't turn aside to these defeated angels and or, or rulers and authorities he talks about here. Christ is the one who has victory over these things. He has disarmed them. They have no teeth. They are chained. If you remember in Pilgrim's Progress, the two lions beside the gate that Pilgrim had to walk through, uh, he was afraid of them. Oh, no, they're going to devour me. No, they're chained. They can't get at you. They can they can bite and snarl and do all these nasty lionish things, but they cannot harm you. Keep going. Trust the Lord. He, they are disarmed. They are the ones who have been stripped of their authority, stripped of their agency even, that uh, they bear no issue one way or another against us. We just sang it so many different times that we can rest in God. He, Though 10,000 fall at your right hand, all, what? We are secure in Christ. And that doesn't mean to say that we're going to live forever. Even Jesus said to Peter, uh, when Peter said, well, what about him? Isn't that interesting how Peter, uh, I mean, we can see a lot of ourselves in Peter. When Jesus says to Peter, you follow me and turning, What way of turning? You said, follow Jesus. And immediately, his first action is to turn away from Jesus and say, what about him? And Jesus said, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. We should follow Christ. We should pay attention to him. We should give our allegiance to him. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's an, an... an action that has already taken place. It's not something he is in the process of. It's, it's still a work and in, in, it's still going on. We, you know, we, have, we expect great gains the next quarter. Or no, it's done. It's accomplished 2,000 years ago, having disarmed and put them now, it says, on display or public display. This idea of uh, God the Father, I believe, made a public display of them. He is the one who has caused them to suffer a public, not just a private a disgrace, but a public disgrace. He has put them on shameful display. He is the one who has uh, sub, subverted and and not just in a, in a quiet way, you know, I, I've undone them and, and they're going to go off and just hide and you know, nurse their wounds in, in private. No, th- this is an action that happened a lot. Uh, the colossians and the ephesians were very familiar and the corinthians because paul mentions this idea in corinthians and second uh, corinthians as well this is the idea that when a roman general or any commander had victory over a people group that they would put them on public display that they would strip them now this picture has a uh, uh, some some measure of clothed uh, captives but it says these uh, nations are capt- captives of war and that they are being led in the front of the victors they are following behind. They are bound, they are stripped, they have no weapons against them, or weapons on them rather. They are ashamed, they are treated uh, poorly, uh, uh, disgracefully because of their, they lost. And so, to the victors go the spoils, and they got all the spoils, and they let them captive. This is a parade that they'd have quite often, because you know how often Rome had victory over the Germans and the, and the, just all manner of people. And these parades, these triumphal processions were quite common in Rome, and other cities, I presume as well, that would celebrate the victory, the great power and prowess of Rome, yay, followed by a group of people who were carrying the crowns. It says, um, these are the crowns of the provinces that are given to the uh, triumphal commanders um, and you if you look at the picture carefully, you can see that they're carrying crowns of gold and, and the precious stuff you know the, the spoils of the nation that they've conquered behind them are the uh, i'm not sure exactly how that's pre- to be translated lectores laureati I think it's uh, um accomplished uh, uh, Policemen is the idea, lictor or commander. They have, uh, these, uh, they're carrying the, uh, the fasces, the, the, the bundle of, of, um, victory and, and the the authority, the strength that they have because of their, their uh, commandeering of these Gentile, of these nations. And then finally, you have this procession that they're carrying the, the sweet aroma or the pleasant aroma of incense. This incense, which as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, I think it is, that there is an aroma uh, for us, some to, of life to life, and some of death to death, which is to say, the aroma sound, uh, smells sweet to those who are victors, those who are who won the battle, but to those who have lost and are either going into death or slavery or become a, a gladiator or or whatever it is, it's an aroma of death. It's an aroma of of, of uh, sorrow and and shame and disgrace and and loss and. Everything that they had back in their home home uh, uh, country or village is, is lost now, and what expectation do they have of ever returning to it? So that aroma, that incense, is great to those who are victors, but to those who were being shamed, it is just adds insult to injury, if you don't mind. And yet this happened a lot, The Roman, these Roman triumphal possessions. When it says here in verse 15, he made a public display of them, it has that idea of God exercising victory over all these rulers and authorities. Even, I mean, not just the, the angelic or spiritual beings. Do you know, if you were to fill out the the life of Pontius Pilate, a uh, very interesting character, but he was deposed sometime thereafter and ended up dying. Uh, uh, I think it was 36, AD 36, when he died. And uh, just a very difficult situation, whether he ever came to a realization that Christ Jesus is that Messiah, that Christ, that Savior. He bore the sin of the world. I don't know. I don't know. God knows. And yet he was taken out of the way. Herod Agrippa also taken out of the way. Uh, God is able to disarm those who were uh, against the Lord and against his Christ, those who put him to death. They thought that they were Putting Jesus on open display, you know, shaming him in public. Uh, often we see a, a depiction of Christ on the cross, and he has some kind of a, a clothing on. And most likely, he is buck naked and shamed, and, and you know he's bleeding and 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 bruised and and shamefully treated. They think, "Ah, oh, look, we have victory." You think Satan was exulting in that day? Yes, because he didn't understand. As much as as the Scripture has foretold it, he didn't understand put Christ on the cross. He dies. He accomplishes salvation. Do you remember what we call the proto-evangelium, the first preaching of the gospel in Genesis 3.15? It talks about the seed of woman, seed of the serpent. You, talking to the serpent, you will bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Yes, Satan, serpent, you will have some victory over Christ, but it is not victory. It is not a lasting thing. Yes, you can kill him, but let me tell you what, I'm going to rise, raise him from the dead and he will be the vanquishing, conquering king. He will crush your head. It's interesting how the same word, it's the same action, crush and crush. You will crush his heel, but he will crush your head or you'll bruise his heel. Same word that's used uh, talking about the, I think it's in Psalm 8, is it? or Psalm 139, it talks about the darkness will not uh, overwhelm me, or I forget how it goes there, but that word overwhelm uh, has, is this idea of of uh, bruising or crushing the contest or the conflict between satan and christ is evident from that very beginning time but guess who comes out as the victor christ god himself is the one who is victor over this thing so why should satan expect to to somehow oh i got you this time got you exactly where i want it we see this again at the end of the millennium satan has been bound in the abyss for a thousand years and he's released for a time and guess what he does I've got Jesus right where I want him. He leads all the nations, deceives them again, leads them in battle against Christ, and they are wiped out again. I mean, it wasn't even a a challenge. It wasn't even a, a, oh, you know, Christ better get on the guard now. But no, do you know when he came the first time and conquered Antichrist and the false prophet? Here's Christ coming on that white horse with the sword and all this stuff, and angels behind him and the saints coming behind him. Guess who fights the battle? it's not the angels it's not the saints it's christ himself he doesn't need any help he already accomplished this victory back at the cross and now he's just bringing it to uh, uh fruition or into a uh, more profound reality and you think well how and how does that all work out to be well let me ask you this are you saved well, yes, I have been saved. I am being saved, and I will be saved. It's kind of a a work in progress. We have justification, thank God that is sh- certain and secure, but we are being sanctified, and this is a a battle up and down all every day. just is a, a a work in progress, and we look forward to that day when we will be glorified. One preacher was saying, "What do you look forward to most in heaven?" He said, "The thing I look more forward to most in heaven is no sin, no sin." And people, no sin. In me, that will be a glorious day. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. Is Christ the victor? Yes, he has accomplished salvation. He is accomplishing salvation or uh, uh, victory over these rulers and authorities. He exercises authority over all nations of the world and over all the demons. Uh, I think it was John Calvin who said uh, the devil is God's devil. It's not to say they're somehow in cooperation or uh, you know, Satan is in cahoots with God or back vice versa. But Satan, as Job 1 and 2 says, Satan can do nothing without God's permission. Have you seen my servant Job? You can read all about that. And uh, Satan asked permission. Satan asked permission, or actually it says, Satan demanded permission, Peter, to sift you like wheat. And what does Jesus say? Actually, you can think what Peter said. Well, you said no, right? Jesus said, I've prayed for you, that your faith would not fail. And when you have turned, because Jesus knew he was going to be sifted like we, and falter for a time. When you have turned, strengthen your brothers. Satan is a vanquished foe, and yet he is so active in our lives. He is the one who is who is doing these things. But Christ is the victor over all these things. He had made a has made a public display of them. He has shamed them uh, publicly. We have this. Maybe there's a different translation uh, that uh, would. Uh, Evidence is better or differently, maybe that he has put on a public display, or he has uh, 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 displayed them in boldness, or in confidence, or in not just a tentative, "Hey, I think I've got them." Kind of like holding the leash of a lion and saying, "You keep that. F- I've got you, but you stay away from me." Kind of thing. No, this is a confident expectation. Christ is the un un uh, contested victor over. These rulers and authorities. This is a triumphal uh, procession. This is an open or a public or a very bold presentation that Christ is not somehow uh, uh, lacking uh, confidence or lacking strength or lacking the assurance that his victory is truly accomplished. This is a, um, a strong, um, Well, bold and confidence—it's a big idea here that we could bring out, and it's spoken of in various places. The question is, or not the question, but the the perspective is: Is this a public display? Because not everybody sees the vanquishing of Satan and his dominions. Not everybody sees that all of our human rulers and authorities throughout the generations are under Christ. We don't acknowledge that. God is the one who establishes kings and puts them down. We saw this in the Old Testament. Uh, Part of the prophecy of Daniel, which is very specific, there are four kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar, you're that great, wonderful, you're the golden head kind of thing. Babylonians and the Medians and the Persians will come in and the Greeks will come in and the Romans will come in and then Christ will come. Well, who determined when the Babylonians were over? You remember that writing on the wall? You have been weighed and found wanting and you're, you're done. Well, whose writing was that? It wasn't the king. It wasn't the enemy king. It was God writing on that. Well, he determines the boundaries of these kingdoms and he is the, the victor over all these things. We can trust in him. Human authority, spiritual authority, all under the headship of Christ. He made a bold presentation of them. He was not shy about it. He was not somehow, um, uh, oh, don't don't worship me, don't honor me. It was barely nothing. I was barely just a trifle of of victory. No, he is there. All worship, all honor, all authority belong to Christ. That's what we saw in Revelation five. You know, all these these angels and everybody bowing down to the lamb that was slain. And he is worthy of all these wonderful uh, accomplishments and the praise that is given to him. And so when he makes a public display of his enemies, you better participate in it and say, worship the son. Uh, Philippians 2, we we sang about in one of our hymns, that at the end day when he comes in his victory, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. He is celebrating this triumph, uh here it says, having triumphed over them through him. This is the idea of that triumphal procession. He, this is the idea of a a, a a boasting, but not, if there's one thing that God the Father, I mean there's not, there's many, there are many things that God the Father can do that we cannot, but if there's one thing that maybe seems wrong in our, our lives, which it is true, it's never wrong for God to do this, and that is to boast in yourself. We have no reason to boast. In fact, we have every reason to be humble. We have every reason to admit, I am less, I am not enough, I am insufficient, I am insignificant. You know, if, if Dr. Martin mentioned it last time, if, if all the nations are like a drop in the bucket, what am I? part of a nation, less than a drop in the bucket. There's so much or or so little about me that matters. And yet God and his love and his kindness uh, showered his love upon me. But Christ is worthy of these things. When he says, I am God and there is no other, worship me, Isaiah 45, and don't turn aside to these other, these false gods, worship me. God is the one, because of who he is, he is the great I am. He has full reason and full right to boast in himself, to seek glory and to be even a jealous God. That he does not, remember the Ten Commandments? Those first ones have to do with you shall have no other God before me. Can I just have this one God? I mean, he's just a success. Can, can there be one that's kind of, right, parallel? No, no other gods before me and even other than me. You worship me. He is a jealous God. He is a consuming fire. He is, uh, he wants us. He wants our attention. He wants everything about us. So when he has this triumphal procession, when he has this triumph and boasting in it, it's right. It is good and right. And for us to worship Christ, that is the right thing that we should do, honoring Christ in his victory. Notice it says, he has triumphed over those, over them, those rulers rulers and authorities. They are, the, the victory is accomplished, and we have assurance that it will come to pass in our experience, experientially. It is a reality in terms of God's uh, economy, and yet we don't see everything subjected to him yet. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that, that um, even God the Father says to his son, Psalm 2 says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We don't see everything subjected to Christ yet. In that ultimate sense. And we don't see death. Death is that last thing to be conquered. Last thing to be, uh, exercising his victory over. But we see this reality. It has happened. He has triumphed over them in Christ. Now, again, your translation may say in it. And truly, that's a valid translation. Some would say that, uh, that he's saying having triumphed over them in that canceled certificate of debt, that because our sin debt, the penalties that were due us, was canceled, we have victory. Because Satan has no more grounds, no more uh, authority to condemn us. We have been we've been declared guiltless or innocent, and so he has no reason, no uh, no ability, no um, uh, dirt on us. I mean, there's, God knows the dirt, and he says Christ has taken that dirt away. He has taken that guilt away. Uh, Satan has been left empty. He has no reason to boast. Some people regard uh, this triumph as something that was accomplished in it, meaning the cross. We see that back in the previous verse, having nailed it to the cross. So the cross is that time when that triumphant triumph was announced or pronounced or accomplished. Some would see it, and I would probably see it this way, that not to say that either of those other two ideas are incorrect. I think they they flow into the reality that it's Christ. He has triumphed. God the Father has triumphed in Christ. Christ accomplished salvation on the cross. He is the one who canceled sin, but we, we don't look to the cross. We don't look to that piece of wood. We don't look to the nails that secured Jesus' body to the tree. We don't look even to the blood that flowed from Emmanuel's veins. We look at Christ. He sacrificed himself, body and soul, for us. He suffered in our place, and so we give authority, honor, allegiance, a worship, glory to Christ. That's really the whole Emphasis that Paul has in this entire letter: worship Christ. Uh, in Him are all the the fullness of deity. In Him He is He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse fifteen of chapter one: God the Father has triumphed in Christ. Uh, Christ is that victor. I mentioned it back in Genesis three and verse fifteen that. Christ shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. It's interesting how snakes, serpents can only get to the lower extremities. Not very many of them can, can get up above your, your waist or, or to the head, but Christ, whereas Christ is, is wounded on the, on the heel. And there, there's some study I want to do on that idea because when Jesus says, uh, the, uh, talks about the, this is the Psalm of David, he says about the one who has lifted up his heel against me. And there's that oppression going on there, that deception and betrayal that goes on. I I need to study that some more. But the the idea is that Satan does have a, a certain victory, an apparent victory, and yet, no. Christ will crush you on your head, a fatal wound. And Christ is that one who is victor. When we look at God's promises toward those who are in in Christ for us in the New Testament time period. But even those who prior to that find their hope and put their confidence in the Lord, not in their strength. You know, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust or boast in the name of the Lord our God. The psalmist and various prophets talk about this this victory and the corresponding shame, you know disarming, the stripping of the enemies. Psalm seventy one, verse thirteen, says, Let those who accuse my soul be ashamed and consumed. Let them be wrapped up with wrapped up with reproach and dishonor who seek to do me evil. There is this desire we have for justice. And you think, even in the, in, the, uh, the, in eternity, when the souls of the tribulation saints and others who have been martyrs for Christ, they ask the Lord, and they ask him quite often, how long, O oh Lord, until you give justice against those who killed us? There is the, when we think when you're in heaven, you don't remember all these things. No, and they were quite aware of what was going on and they knew on earth that, that justice had not been meted out yet. And so this concern for justice, concern for uh, vindication is quite evident, partly because God promised it. Let them be wrapped up with reproach and dishonor. Psalm 109 says, This is the reward of my accusers from Yahweh and of those who speak evil against my soul. Let my accusers be clothed with dishonor. Let them wrap themselves with their own shame as with a robe. We see this idea of stripping and disarming and and not just stripping, but also then clothing with shameful things. Uh, uh, clothing themselves with, with shame as with a robe. Isaiah 41 speaks of it this way. He says, you will, uh, this is God talking to Israel, you will seek those who quarrel with you, but will not find them. These are those accusers. Those are those who find fault with Israel. You will seek for them, but you'll not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. For I am the Lord your God, who uphold your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I'll help you. Do not fear, you worm Jacob. Like That's kind of derogatory. Well, it's true. You worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. That's good news. Our Redeemer is not some man like us, not like a Samson, not like a Samuel even, the last judge. This is the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, who has accomplished salvation for us. That, that's, that's good. He says in Isaiah 45, or 16, they will be put to shame and even humiliated. All of them, these rulers and authorities who accuse us, they, the manufacturers of idols will go away together in humiliation. Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. Zechariah talks about this. Uh, Zechariah chapter three, you could look at. Uh, Christ himself proves or demonstrates his victory over Satan, over his demons in the temptation. Matthew four, Luke four. We saw this in our study in Luke's gospel. And he is the one who resisted Satan in the wilderness during his, his, those 40 days of temptation. And he says, I exercise dominion or or authority even over the demons. And he says, uh, Matthew 28, or Matthew 12, rather, and, and Luke 11, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Wow. This is God exercising his authority over these rulers and authorities. And God is victor. Christ is accomplishing these things. Luke 10, Jesus says, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That's in judgment. That's in casting him out. That's in in a condemnation of what Satan is doing. John records this many different times. John twelve verse thirty one. Jesus says, "Now judgment is on this is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out or deposed." You think, "Well, he's still the prince of the power of the air." Ephesians two verse two says, and yet he has been cast out. He is uh, uh, no longer in charge. Not that he ever was, but. There, there's a certain measure of authority given to him because of Adam and Eve's disobedience, Adam's disobedience against a God and bringing authority to Satan. Satan himself was a true statement, a boasting, when he says, all you have to do, Jesus, just worship me and I'll give you all the nations. I'll give you this authority. I'll give all, all of the honor and everything. And Jesus says, get behind me or, or get away from me. You worship the Lord and serve him only. Jesus says in, in John 14, verse 30, uh, yeah, verse 30 says, uh, the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. He has no part of me. He has no claim on me. I am victory over him. John 16, uh, eight, verse 8 says, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he says concerning judgment, verse 11, because the ruler of this world has been judged. There is this victory that Christ has and it is a sure promise for us like we can read in Romans 8. I am confident, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, anything in this created world will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are many other scriptures I could look at. One one last one, Hebrews 2, talks about the power that Satan has. And that this is kind of a very interesting concept. How does this relate to other things? But it says... Uh, Hebrews 2 and verse 14, Since the children shared flesh and blood, flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise also partook of the same. He became human. He took upon himself the form of a man, Philippians 2 says, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. What is this power of death? What is this uh, fear of death that we have and this, this slavery? I think it is... Partly what he says later in Hebrews, Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed and the man wants to die and then comes happy times, peace and tranquility and just, no. Then comes the judgment. We'll stand before the Lord and give an account for what we've done in the flesh. And that is a fearful thing for those who are outside of Christ. Satan has that power because he is the accuser. He brings condemnation and ruination and despair and death. But those who are in Christ are no longer subject to that slavery, no longer subject to that fear. Paul says, for me, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And so I can have that confidence. One commentator said this this way, and I'll end with this. When Christ publicly died on the cross for his own, he paid the penalty, endured the curse, died the death which their sins deserve, meeting fully all the penal sanctions of the law. It is the fact that God's own are transgressors of his law that has ever been the sole ground of Satan's accusations against them. But when Christ paid the penalty for their sins, God disarmed him of that ground and triumphed over Satan's kingdom kingdom thereby. We have that that victory. We have that, that sure salvation in Christ. Worship Christ. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word and the realities that we enjoy right now, the the truth of this victory that you've accomplished over every ruler and authority. Christ is that victor. Christ is the triumphant uh, Savior, the Redeemer, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We pray that he would come soon and bring times of refreshing, that you would accomplish in experience, in time, this final victory over Satan and and his dominion. We pray that you would help us to be, as we saw back in uh, chapter 1, verse 14, that you have transferred us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son of your love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Please help us to cling to Christ, help us to turn to him. Please help us to uh, remember that that sin has no longer any hold on us, that we are new creatures, we are in Christ, and we ought to uh, obey you and bear fruit for you and walk in righteousness and truth and uprightness. Please help us. We know that we are so prone to doubt you, to turn from Christ, to realize, or to think, rather, consider that somehow, "Eh, I don't know if Christ is sufficient. I don't know if Christ is is aware of this situation in my life. Please help us to trust you. Please help us to have a childlike faith, even when we think we are somewhat sophisticated or we know better than you. Please help us to be simple uh, before you, to trust wholly in you, wholly lean on Jesus' name. Please help. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.